<clears throat> hey, good my name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Westbridge, and we are thrilled to have you here with us. Thanks for joining us today. Grab your outline. That'll help you uh, follow along with the talk this morning. As you're grabbing that, I want to say hello to those of you in our parent viewing areas. Thanks for joining us there. It's a great option if you have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service. I want to say hello to those of you who are engaging with us online. Thanks for participating through that venue. If you'd like to follow along on your smart device, you can use the Uversion app. Uh, just uh, go to the bottom right corner, select More. Click events and search Westbridge Church. You can find the same outline available there. And then today is kind of a special day. It's really cool. Um, you may or may not be aware that we are uh, connected with a bunch of other churches across the country, not through any specific denomination or anything like that, but churches that we've helped start, and then they've helped start other churches, and we've stayed friends with those pastors. And so about once a year, we get together with uh, maybe eight to 12 other pastors and learn from each other. And uh, we have a few of those churches joining us, kind of, uh, we're, we're speaking into those churches through the power of technology this morning. So uh, this morning, we've got um, East Lake Tri-Cities in southeastern Washington. Hello to you guys. Uh, we're great friends with your pastor, Brent and Kylie, and, uh, and then We've got uh, Dave Nelson and Rindy, uh, great friends of those guys at Great Lakes Church in the exotic location of Kenosha, Wisconsin. And then uh, also Tony and Ashley Mitchell joining us from the Meeting Place in Spokane, Washington. So uh, awesome to have all of you guys. Huge shout out to you guys and thanks for chiming in through the worldwide interweb. All right, so we're going to launch this uh, talk this morning. We're in part five of a series just called Best Summer Ever. And uh, we've been talking about a, a various different topics that help us live life better. I was thinking this week about um, what we're talking about today, and I thought I'd start with a list of fears and phobias that uh, you may or may not be aware of. The first one is this, anuntophobia is the fear of being single forever. I don't know if anybody has that fear. Um, another fear is this, blenophobia, it's the fear of slime. Anybody have the fear of slime? Now, I grew up as a child of uh, Nickelodeon Double Double Dare, so uh, that whole era. So if anybody knows what that is, there was plenty of slime to go around. Uh, so my generation does not suffer from that fear, but maybe you do. Another one is uh, Hellenologophobia. That is the fear of complex scientific terms. Yeah, I feel like we could have done better with that one, right? We could have, could have named that more appropriately. Like, if we're going to diagnose you with something, it shouldn't cause you to have an episode just to name it, right? Uh, here's another one, uh, syngensophobia. It's the fear of family. It flares up for people during the holidays, I've heard. <laughs> another one is nomophobia, fear of losing cell phone signal. That one affects actually a large percentage of our teenage audience. Uh, and then another one, uh, my son taught me this, I don't even know if I can say it correctly, hippopotamonstrosasquipedeliophobia. Fear of large words. I kid you not. Fear of large words. So uh, I think that's hilarious. Uh, and then there is another fear that I think we all deal with. It's the fear of not being accepted. And the scientific term for that is adolescence. That's what that's called. So here's the truth. We would all like to think that we've outgrown that fear, wouldn't we? We'd like to think that maybe, you know, we're past that. We're, we're mature now. But if we're honest with ourselves, here's the reality. If you're taking notes, number one, all of us deal with approval addiction. All of us deal with approval addiction on some level. 
Uh, you know, some of, some of the pastors that I'm friends with from some of these other churches, I, I, Brent and Kylie, uh, Cherry and I got to hang out with them a couple of months ago for a couple of days and just had such a blast with them. And one of the things I love so much about uh, Brent is that he is just very comfortable in his own skin. Uh, one of the guys, the few guys in my life, I could say, no fear of what others think of him, right? Uh, of course, then there's my other friend Dave from Great Lakes. Uh, sorry, guys. Uh, and then uh, my friend Tony Mitchell is moving into uh, a tiny house with three kids. He clearly does not care about what people think because uh, that is crazy. That's nuts. But we all, let's be honest, all of us somewhere have this fear of not fitting in, of not being accepted. Somewhere along the way, we do things to sort of manage our image because we want people to perceive us in a certain way. And today we're going to look at something that Jesus said during one of his most famous talks. He, you can find this in Matthew uh, 5 through 7. If you want to read through these chapters, it's, it's kind of Jesus' uh, state of the union, if you will. It's really the most famous recorded talk that Jesus gives. And today we're going to look at one thing Jesus says right in the middle of this talk that speaks to this approval addiction that we all tend to face. And here's what Jesus says. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Now, this is such an interesting statement because what Jesus is ultimately addressing here is approval addiction, and here's why. It's this concept of, okay, I'm gonna live in bondage uh, to what other people think of me. I'm gonna do things to manage my image, to make my life a performance to impress other people, the disease to please. And Jesus goes on in the rest of this chapter to talk about how people in their culture would actually uh, show others show off to others and, and uh, show how much they're giving and how much they're fasting and how much they're praying. And that was the culture that Jesus lived in. He lived in a, a very religious culture. You could pursue status by simply flaunting how religiously devout you were. Now, we live in a much less religious culture, but the reality is we do the exact same thing just in different ways. We can take something that's good giving or fasting or praying or our grades or our job or our body or our family, and we can use those things to win the approval of others to try to feed our own ego. And I don't even know how much of a mess I'm in when I'm doing this because ego blinds me to my own ego. Isn't that true? My ego blinds me to the fact that I have an ego. That's how subtle it is. Anytime you're trying to win the approval of others, you can't acknowledge that that's what you're doing, that you're trying to win the approval of others, because if people think you're trying to win their approval, they won't give you their approval. So you can't acknowledge it, so it's very subtle. And so in Matthew 6, people are giving, and they're praying, and they're fasting, and they're doing it because they want to impress other people, and they want to be seen by others. But again, you can't say that that's the reason I'm doing it. And so they have to pretend that the reason they're doing it is because of this deep love of God. And this is what Jesus calls out. He calls out the hypocrisy of that. And if we're honest, this gets into all of us because all of us on some level have this ongoing battle with our ego. We're all tempted at some point in time uh, to some setting, some situation, some group of people to be something we're not and if we think that we'll get approval in that moment. For example, have you ever done this? Has ever, someone ever been talking and you're in a group and you're kind of listening and nodding along and, and, and then somebody mentions something like, oh, have you heard of this person? And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then you're thinking to yourself, I don't know who that is, but I don't want to admit it. 
Okay, so just me? Okay, well, I'm glad I, glad I got that off my chest. All right. Uh, <laughs> we've all been in that situation, right? It's like, or, or oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about, and, and you know, they're not going to fact check me, so I can just get away with that and, and uh, feel like I'm part of the group here. An author named Mitch Princeton wrote a book called uh, Popular. It's just the name of the, the book. He says, when we head into high school, chemical changes in our brain make popularity seem like the most urgent priority in life. And then that can stick with us into adulthood. And then he goes on to discuss there are two types of popularity. One is about status, who everybody sees as kind of the, the top of the food chain. And there's a different type of popularity that he terms likability. And those are very, very different. He describes a high school student named Alexandra Court. And she is tall, attractive, well-dressed, very sure of herself. She's the queen of the inner ring, and uh, every student surveyed listed her as the most popular girl in the school. Ironically, when asked who is the most disliked person in the school, also Alexandra Court. And it's because she was uh, mean and dismissive and exclusive and gossipy. Then he describes this thing called likability. And it turns out likability is very different than status. Likability is about being other-centered. It's about being a good listener. It's about being genuinely interested in the well-being of others, to will their good. And when you think about this likability as described by this author, it really sounds a lot like what Jesus describes as kindness or love. And when you're with a status seeker, they make you feel like you're less than. But when you're with someone who has likability, you feel called to be your best self, like your life really matters. And the problem for people who suffer from approval addiction, living life to make sure that I have this image that people see me a certain way is that there's never enough approval. People who study this area and, and research uh, say that approval addicts end up engaging in what they call excessive reassurance seeking. So they're, they're always checking in with you, or they're always apologizing. Oh, sorry, that didn't mean, sorry, is that okay? Hey, did, how am I doing? Did you like what I just did? By the way, how's this talk going? Is it pretty good so far? Okay. <laughs> Princeton's so dumb. All right, Princeton and other researchers have noted social media can be so addictive, particularly for teens, because of the fact that when craving popularity, social media acts like a rewards dispenser. I know that like when I was in junior high and high school, I just had to assume that I wasn't popular. But now you can actually have it confirmed for you through Facebook <laughs> and Instagram. You can keep track of how many likes you get. And every little emoji and like and you know, uh, double tap, my heart shows up on Instagram, uh, what does it do? It actually is a little hit of dopamine and we actually become addicted to that. Do you know YouTube currently has 13,000 tutorials on how to take the perfect selfie. 13,000 videos on how to take a picture of yourself. That's incredible. Do you know how many tutorials there are on YouTube about how to die to your imperfect self? That would be zero. No tutorials on how to die to yourself. So I think it's safe to say we all seek approval one way or another. In fact, I would say that's even natural. But here's what is important. Number two, the question is not, will I seek approval? The real question is, where will I seek approval? Where will I seek approval? I have an infinite need for approval. That's part of being human. 
But God has an infinite supply. The alternative to approval addiction is simply this, to live for an audience of one. To live for an audience of one. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher in the 1800s who talked about this idea of an audience of one. That is to live in such a way that I have an audience which consists only of God. Which recognizes that, okay, I'm, I need approval and I'm, I, I'm made to live for approval, but I find that approval only in God. This is really what Jesus described as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that you can enter into. He says, you live to please God. You live before God. You live to be approved by God. You find your security in God's love. You find your identity in the image of God and your hope in the strength and the power of God. In this talk in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus actually says this, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that isn't meant to be prohibitive, like keep this standard or else I'm not letting you in. It's more of a natural cause and effect. Uh, Unless you ever uh, take surfboard lessons and get on a surfboard, you will never experience the thrill of surfing. That's what he's saying. So uh, if you don't, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and Pharisees, then you never, by, by cause and effect, naturally, you don't get to experience life in God's kingdom. To enter into the kingdom of heaven is to live for an audience of one. In fact, Jesus uses a word that we probably would consider a little bit churchy to us, but he says righteousness. And when we hear that, we tend to equate it with some type of church word or Bible word, but righteousness in this context really just means uh, doing the right thing for the right reason. So you can do the right thing for the wrong reason, which is exactly what was happening in Jesus' day, and that's what he was calling out. They were giving and praying and fasting, doing all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. You can also do the wrong things for the right reason. (coughs) Throughout history, we've heard stories of people who are forced into uh, stealing food or doing things to provide for their family, and it's the wrong thing, but the right motive, the right reason. But righteousness is simply doing the right thing for the right reason. And in fact, if Jesus were to reword this, I think he'd say, unless you do the right thing for the right reason, you'll never truly experience what it's like to enter into God's kingdom. In fact, you can't live for both human approval and for God's approval at the same time. You have to choose which road you're gonna be on. The apostle Paul wrote to followers of Jesus who were living in the region of Galatia, and he writes this. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. In John's account of Jesus' life, John writes about a group of people who believed in Jesus, but they didn't want to admit that because of what the Pharisees and teachers of religious law might think of them. He says this about them, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. At one point, the apostle Paul writes to followers of Jesus in Corinth and says, I don't care how you judge me. Uh, Basically, I live for God, audience of one. So I don't care if you or anyone else judges me. And I think that... This is a great phrase for us to remember this week. If if you're struggling with trying to manage your image and how people see you and approval addiction, there's this great phrase, I don't care. It's really helpful. In fact, let's practice it together. Everybody here today and everybody watching us, uh, ready? One, two, three. I don't care. Isn't that freeing? So this week when an expert in interior decorating doesn't approve of your decor, I don't care. Yeah. And when the cool kids don't approve of your taste in music, 
Yeah. When a law enforcement officer doesn't like how fast you're driving. <laughs> All right, it doesn't work in every situation, right? So <laughs> it doesn't mean that you don't care about people. Okay, there's a difference. It means I live for an audience of one, and you're not that one. And that's actually healthy. It doesn't mean you don't care about people. It simply means that you know what matters most. Am I doing the right thing for the right reason? And when you do that, Jesus says, you actually get to experience life in God's kingdom. That, that's what it's like to enter into and to live out being a part of God's kingdom. And Jesus goes on to name the consequence, and I think this is really interesting. He names the consequence for performing to impress others. And so he says, don't do this. Watch out. Don't do your works for others to be seen, right? And in that day, it was often religious. In our day, it might be working hard or athletics or possessions or social media or the position that we have or our career. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. None of those things are wrong. But we can use those things to gain the approval of others. We can use those things to kind of set a bar and try to manage an image and, and get uh, kind of accolades from other people and in which case Jesus names the consequence. He says, when you do that, you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Now, it's such an interesting phrase, and this can be very confusing. So if I do something good and someone sees it, then God's like, oh, I was gonna reward you, but busted, someone saw, and I'm taking it back. Is that what Jesus is saying? Because that seems like what he's saying. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes uh, something I think is really helpful. He talks about two different types of rewards. So two types of rewards are extrinsic and intrinsic. Now, I'm not an expert speller, so I had to look this up. We'll leave it on the board for you. Uh, two types of rewards, extrinsic and intrinsic. An extrinsic reward is something that is outward. It's not naturally attached to the activity or relationship. And so uh, it's, it's an add-on right? It's, a, it's, a, it's in addition to, it's a prize, it's a bribe. An intrinsic reward is one that just naturally flows from and is connected to the activity or relationship. So if, if you marry someone because they're rich and you want their money, that's an extrinsic reward, okay? But an intrinsic reward is if you marry someone because you just really love them and you want to spend your life with them, then the reward is that you get to be with them, but if you're just after the money, that's external, it's extrinsic. So, so that's the difference. Or if you study to get good grades so that other people will be impressed and you'll win all kinds of academic awards. That's great, it's an add-on, it's extrinsic. But if you study and get good grades and work hard simply for the joy of learning, because you just love to learn, and the wonder of discovery and intellectual enrichment, that's an intrinsic reward. It's naturally connected to the activity. Or if you buy a high-performance sports car because it has status and prestige and will impress people, that's an extrinsic reward. But if you buy it just because you love speed and beauty and power and you want to give it to your pastor as an expression of love, <laughs> then that, you know. <laughs> so you see the difference between those things. Okay. The distinction is really important when talking about rewards in the scriptures. Uh, in the scriptures, it's intrinsic rewards that are connected to loving God and connected to life in God's kingdom. They're mostly rewards about who we're becoming. They're not rewards about if you do this, God's gonna somehow reward you with something. It's an intrinsic reward that's attached to the practice or the activity or the relationship. And so Jesus is not saying, hey, if you do the right things for the right reasons, but someone happens to see you 
God's like, uh, 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 and he pulls that reward back. It's not what he's saying. The rewards that Jesus are talking about are primarily about life in the kingdom and who we're becoming. And so this idea Jesus is speaking to in Matthew 6, 1, is that we can learn, if we can learn to do the right things for the right reasons without needing to be seen by others, the reward, this intrinsic reward, is that we will naturally be freed from the ongoing tyranny of approval addiction, that we will need it less and less. It's a natural byproduct of of living that way. And so you'll have this intrinsic peace that comes from knowing I'm approved by God. I'm loved by God. I don't have to manage my image. I don't have to be approved by others. I'm living for an audience of one. And you'll have the security of not having approval from others all the time. And if you keep performing to impress people, then Jesus says, guess what? You do get a reward. And the reward is that they will be impressed. And you get to keep that but it's very extrinsic and it doesn't actually help you live life in God's kingdom. And that's the difference. And so how do we free ourselves from this? Like how do we battle ego, free ourselves from this approval addiction? You might think of it like this, and some of you have been wondering, why the whiteboard? Now we get to have some fun. Uh, You might think of it like this. We were all made by God with two really basic needs. Uh, Really, the need to be accepted and the need to be known. So on one hand here, we'll write, Accepted. And over here we'll write known. And you can kind of think about this in a two by two grid. And all of us have these basic needs. All of us want to be fully known. We want people to know who we are. We want to be vulnerable and say, this is my true self. And when we do that, we want to know that people are going to accept us. That when we're vulnerable and say, this is who I am, that people will accept who we are. But to be accepted and to not be known is exactly what was going on in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. The Pharisees and teachers of religious law were widely accepted, but they weren't fully known because they were pretending. They were just doing it to impress people. Their true selves weren't known. And what you have, uh, if you want to write this down, for those of you that are taking notes, is illusion. This is just an illusion. And so you can live in illusion, and it feels good because you're accepted, but you're not actually known. And it doesn't meet that need of saying, this is who I really am. And a lot of people choose to live here. And this can be really dangerous, especially when, if this is the culture and environment that gets set up in church. Then people always have to pretend, and you can only pretend for so long, and pretty soon you go, but I'm not, nobody really knows me, and after a while, you just kind of fade out. And then you can be not accepted and not known at all, and this is what we would call isolation. And it's, this is an epidemic in our country. Uh, It's ironic in a world of so much social media and technology that we've experienced such a loss of community as a culture. As a culture, we we have such a loss of uh, connectedness and knowing and loving, and uh, the number of people who truly live in isolation continues to go up. Because I don't want to be vulnerable, I'm afraid I won't be accepted. And then there's another area where it's, hey, I am fully known. I I did put myself out there. This is who I am, but I didn't get accepted. And that is rejection. And we've all experienced this on some level. We've all experienced rejection, and rejection is painful. 
Rejection is, uh, it, it, at its very core, is very painful because you've said, this is who I am, I'm vulnerable, and then you didn't get accepted. It's interesting, in the creation narrative, when you look at the, the story of creation as recorded in Genesis, uh, what you get is this phrase where it, the author tells us that they were, they were naked and they were not ashamed. Naked, fully known, not ashamed, fully accepted. They were fully known and fully accepted. They were naked and they were not ashamed. And we all know what it feels like to experience rejection. When I was in uh, 10th grade, uh, I was the exact same height and about 80 pounds lighter. And that's hard to believe. I turned sideways, disappeared. (laughs) Except for the fact that my skin tone was the color of an uncooked marshmallow. So... (laughs) So I've played basketball for as long as I can remember, and uh, I hated when we'd play shirts and skins. Just hated it. And I would just try to be on the shirts team no matter what, like whoever's shirts, like we're shooting for the ball, and like I would just miss so I could be on the shirts. I don't care who my teammates were, just wanted to be on the shirts team. And I can remember being in 10th grade, taking my shirt off, being on the skins team, and having my friends ridicule me, you know? And it's nothing like, super scarring or anything like that, but uh, I just decided that no one would ever again in my life see me with my shirt off. That's all. So, (laughs) and then I met a girl named Cherry, and uh, one day after, you know, we had dated for a while and thought, man, I can let her see me with my shirt off because she loves me and, and I know it and she will not ridicule me and I know that. And after all, we have been married for 10 years and I think it's time. So, <laughs> so we all know what rejection feels like on some level, right? So this is, <laughs> we want to be fully known and fully accepted. This is what life in God's kingdom is. Fully known, fully accepted. It's love. To say, look, I know you completely. You've, you've been vulnerable with me, and, and I know I know your shortcomings and I know your failures and I know everything about you. That's what makes marriage so powerful. That's why, frankly, sexual intimacy within marriage is so powerful because you're saying, I'm naked with you but not ashamed, I accept you. There's something, it's not just a physical thing, there's something incredibly intimate emotionally and psychologically about that and entering into that in, a, in an exclusive marriage relationship. And why is that? Because it's a, it's a uh, mirroring of what God does for us. There's freedom there. There's life there. This is what it looks like to enter into God's kingdom. I can be fully known and fully accepted. I know who God has created me to be, and I don't have to seek the approval from anyone else to live out that identity. So before we close, let me give you two practices that uh, I think help us battle ego. The first one is this. Number one, the practice of secrecy. Uh, the practice of secrecy. Now, this often gets misunderstood. Jesus talks about this a lot throughout this talk. He says, anytime you pray, never do it with other people, do it in secret. And what is he saying? He's giving us a practice that will be helpful for us if you do happen to struggle with approval addiction. He's not saying, if you pray, don't ever pray with anyone else. He's just saying, look, this is a practice that if this is a struggle for you, do this practice. Do the right thing for the right reason, and then don't tell anybody about it. Do the right thing for the right reason, and then don't even put it on Instagram. 
Do the right thing for the right reason and do it in secret because when you do, you will discover that you don't need to impress other people in order to live a joyful life. And it sets you free from that. You'll actually begin to experience freedom that comes from entering into God's kingdom. And so throughout this talk, Jesus says says things like, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Like, keep it a secret even from yourself. Don't pat yourself on the back. And when you pray, just pray in secret. And you don't have to flaunt it and say, hey, I just want you to know I prayed today. And when you fast, he says, he says, you know, just fast and don't even tell anybody. And just keep it a secret. Just, and these are spiritual practices that were daily habits for them or weekly habits for them. He says, your heavenly father sees what you do in secret and will reward you. What is that? Intrinsic reward. You'll become the kind of person who can live with joy and love apart from approval. That's the reward. You, you experience life in God's kingdom where you live for an audience of one. Write an anonymous note to somebody and then just revel in the joy of having done the right thing for the right reason without anybody knowing. Pay for somebody in the drive-thru behind you and then just revel in the joy of having done the right thing for the right reason without anybody knowing. And don't post about it and don't say, hey, here's what I did. Just, just do it and let it be. And your father who sees what you've done in secret will reward you. Intrinsic reward helps you to become free from the addiction of approval. Give, serve, love freely without anyone seeing you. And number two, the practice of community. The only way that we're able to enter into love, the only way that we're able to enter into I know you, but I, and I still accept you. I know everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I still accept who you are, is through the sacrifice of Jesus. See, the, only, the way that we get to that requires a certain measure of grace because, let's face it, you're messed up. <laughs> and I am too. And so here's the reality. The only way that we can know everything about each other and still accept each other, there, it, there's grace that flows as a result of that exchange. And the only way that we learn that is because we've experienced that grace in our direction from Jesus. The only way that we truly look at each other and are vulnerable enough to be our true selves and also willing to extend grace is because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we've experienced. And what's interesting is in Jesus' day, in the culture that he lived in, in the temple in Jerusalem, everything was arranged spatially. Everything was arranged in a certain way. Uh, the temple in the center was the temple containing the Holy of Holies where it was believed God uh, was present in a very unique way. God's presence dwelt in that place. And then outside of that was the court for the priests where they would perform their sacrificial duties. And outside of that was the uh, Jewish court where average, everyday Jewish worshipers would go and worship. And outside of that was what was called the court of the Gentiles. And this was for non-Jewish worshipers. And if you were in the court of the Gentiles, if you wanted to go into the court of the Jews, you were confronted by a wall separating the two courts. And inscribed on that wall was uh, something that informed you that should you try to enter the court of the Jews, you would be promptly put to death. And so there's a wall, a literal wall, between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. And so Gentiles were fully known, but they were not accepted. (laughs) Excuse me. Thank you. 
Gentiles were known, but they were not accepted. And on the other hand, you had Jews who were accepted, but they weren't known. They were just pretending. And so this is a problem for both groups. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus breaks bread, and he passes a cup, and he passes it to Jewish followers. And this actually commemorates the, for them, this is very, had rich meaning at the time, it was to commemorate when God delivered the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So every year they would celebrate this Passover and they would break bread together. And then Jesus comes and he breaks bread and he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a new spin on this. It used to be about one thing, but now it's about something new. And now it's about my sacrifice. This represents my body and my blood, which will be broken for you and spilled for you. And now it represents something brand new. The Apostle Paul actually writes about this and the implication of this uh, in his letter to uh, Jesus' followers living in Ephesus. Listen to what he writes. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. That is so incredible when you think about what Paul is writing here. The wall of hostility has been broken. The literal wall, and then he says the hostility that is between us has been broken as well. You and I are now, it's no longer two separate groups. We've all been invited in, and we can be known and accepted because of Jesus leading the way. And so if you want to experience the kind of intrinsic reward that comes from living in the kingdom of God, there's a couple things you can do. Do the right things for the right reason, and don't tell anybody about it. And then secondly... Get into a group of people where you can experience being fully known and fully accepted. That's why we do groups here at Westbridge. We have a bunch of groups. They're all on, a lot of them are on break during the summer because people are traveling and vacations and graduations and all of these things. But throughout the school year, uh, man, we, we have a whole bunch of groups that are launching in the fall. And this is just a, a vehicle for us to provide a, a way for you to say, how do I get there? How do, I, how do I get with a group of people where I can truly be who I am and know that they accept me, and where I can extend the same grace and acceptance to them, even though they're fully known? And the whole reason that we do that is to help you get into a group so that you can experience that. And there are people who go to church, even people who go to our church, week after week, month after month, year after year, and they are basically a permanent guest because they never allow themselves to become known in community. And what we want for you and what God wants for you is to enter into the kingdom where you're fully known and fully loved. But the only way to do that is to make yourself vulnerable enough to say, I'm gonna get into a group. I'm gonna, uh, this is who I am and I'm gonna accept others and they're gonna accept me. And in that exchange, we experience life in God's kingdom. The sacrifice of Jesus ensures you can be fully known and fully loved. So one of the ways that we celebrate that is through communion. On your way in, you should have received one of these uh, communions. And um, you don't have to be a member here to celebrate this with us. Uh, in fact, you don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to celebrate this with us. Uh, there's nothing 
necessarily um, magical about this, okay? It's a, it's a delicious wafer and a thimble of grape juice. <laughs> but if you are a follower of Jesus, there's rich symbolism to this. It's not meant to be an elaborate ceremony. It's simply meant to be something that triggers in us a, a moment of gratitude for the grace that we've received, and then a moment of contemplation where we say, now how can I take that same grace and extend that to others? And that's why Jesus did this. And so specifically for his followers who were Jewish who celebrated this as the Passover, he put a brand new spin on it. And he said, look, this is basically the Passover, but now what this is gonna represent moving forward is something new. It's gonna represent that there's no longer two groups, but now there's one. It's no, there's no longer us and them, there's only us. And so he, Jesus says, uh, he, he takes bread and, and he breaks it and he gives it to his followers. And here's what he says, and we'll receive this together. Jesus says, this now represents my body, which is gonna be broken for you. And every time that you receive it, I want you to remember that sacrifice. And so in remembrance of the sacrifice and the love of Jesus, let's receive the bread together. And then Jesus takes the cup. And Jesus says, this represents my blood, which will be spilled for you. And it represents a new covenant or a new agreement, a new understanding between how human beings interact with the divine, interact with God. And he says, so this, this seals it, and he's speaking in a, in a, to a group of people who used a very sacrificial system. And so he's saying, look, it used to be that you'd take a lamb or a bird to the temple and offer, you know, spill its blood and offer a sacrifice. Now, it, I'm gonna sacrifice myself and that's gonna steal it once and for all. And now you're good with God. Now you've been invited into God's family. And this represents that. And so as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, let's receive the cup together. Now if you're here today and you'd say this, I've, I've never said yes to following Jesus. I want you to know, if I could be so bold as to summarize the Bible, God's building a family and he wants you in it. If you've never said yes to that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible, and you're like, I got a lot of questions. There's a lot of stuff I don't understand. You can actually follow Jesus and say yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family, even if you don't have all your questions answered. And you can just bring those with you, and, and God is okay with your questions. But the, at, the, at the core of all of it is that God is building a family, and he wants you in it. And you were created by God to exist in loving community with God and with each other. And if you've never said yes to that, you can say yes to that right now. Just agree with this simple prayer. Jesus, please forgive my sins and forgive me for the times where I've walked away from you. I thank you that you've never walked away from me. And I pray that you would adopt me into your family, make me your son, make me your daughter, and help me to follow your way of living life as best as I know how from this moment on. In Jesus' name, amen.